We do indeed have a faithful, faithful Father, don't we? Let's pray to him right now as we get going. Uh, Lord God, again, we come before your throne of grace with confidence. Not because of ourselves, Lord God, but rather because of your son. And so in his name this morning, we pray that as we come under the teaching of your word, as we see it in the beginning and in the end and even right now in our lives, Lord God, describing your great faithfulness, would you use that to encourage our hearts to build us up and to draw us closer to you, whatever that means for each of us here today. We ask that you do that by your spirit and by your word, and would you send us out of this place with some great truth to hang on to about who you are and who we are so we can walk closely with you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen, amen. Hello again and good morning. Welcome into this family feast of ours where we hope to draw nearer to our God as we come under his word to enjoy more of his presence in us by his spirit. So welcome. My name is Charlie, one of the elders here, and we get to continue our summer series in Hebrews chapter 11, studying the, what it looks like to have faith in God's faithfulness. And if you've never read the book of Hebrews before, uh, do yourself a favor, check it out. If you go to our Facebook group, uh, River City uh, Church Fargo, you can find a video we posted that explains the context of Hebrews to help you better understand it. So check that out. But I studied this book a few years ago in depth just for my own personal Bible study. And what stuck out to me and what has stuck with me ever since then was the main theme of this whole book. It's that Jesus is the better priest of a better covenant that has better promises, and he himself is the better sacrifice. And so that's amazing to me, and that was super helpful for me in my faith. And it was written to a group of people who were used to relating to God on the basis of their own obedience, their own ability to remain uh, faithful to God's law. And so Hebrews, it points out that Jesus was the only person who was truly faithful in every way. And those who read this letter, they were warned to trust in Christ rather than going back to the old way of relating to God and trying to make him happy through their own effort and their own exertion. And so our, studies of, our study of Hebrews 11 it points to a number of examples from the Old Testament looking at people who you would think made God happy through their own effort and their own exertion, their own ability to obey. But what it's really pointing us to is the fact that it was their faith that was pleasing to God. We studied Abel last week. He was commended as righteous before God because of his faith. And we're going to study many others over the course of this summer who also had confidence that God is able to do all that he has promised to do. And so this morning we're going to study a guy named Enoch. And Enoch was part of the seventh generation of humans to ever exist, which is crazy to me. I'm a millennial, uh, class of 2001. But I'm a millennial nonetheless. I'm an older one. But Enoch, he was generation seven. They don't have fancy names for that. Just literally the seventh generation of people ever on the face of the earth. And he was born after sin had entered in, uh, into the world in Genesis 3, when wickedness was great in the earth, where every intention of the thoughts of everyone's heart was only evil continually, is what Genesis 6 tells us. 
But what's crazy is that even with all this wickedness and rampant evil in the world, Genesis 4.26 shows us that there were people then calling on the name of the Lord. There were people then, in the midst of that, placing their faith and their trust in God just as we have done as well. And so to get a sense of where Enoch fits in the midst of all this stuff, we're going to read from Genesis 5, verses 21 through 24. So if you want to open your Bibles, page 3. We're at the very front. Page 3 is where you'll find that passage. We're going to read that first. Then after that, we're going to flip all the way to the other side of the Bible, to page 663, and we're going to read two verses from the book of Jude. And we're doing that because these two passages are going to inform how we read Hebrews 11, which we'll read lastly in a few minutes. So first from Genesis chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. So again, if you want to flip all the way to the other side of your Bible in the book of Jude, it's right before the book of Revelation. You can, otherwise it's going to be on the screen. So Jude shares this about Enoch. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So Enoch was a dude. How many times did he use ungodly in those two verses? Enoch was an interesting guy who lived at an interesting time. So now let's read Hebrews 11, 5, and 6. And now having this background of how someone who would read this book for the first time would understand it, hopefully this will help us to receive Hebrews 11, 5, and 6 in a way similar to the original audience. And so this is on page 652, if you want to turn there. 652, but we're going to be back in Hebrews 11. We're going to look at two verses, verses 5 and 6, but they'll be on the screen as well. By faith... Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found, because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Amen. That's the word of the Lord for us this morning. And what we're going to find as we dive into this further is that we're going to refine our definition of faith more and more. We started a few Sundays ago where Jake led us uh, in the intro to this series looking at faith as confidence that God will do all that he's promised to do. And last week, Devin led us as we studied Abel, and we saw that faith is confidence that we have been counted righteous. And this week, we're going to consider that before putting our faith in Christ, we were dead in sin and we were displeasing to God. Even now, even with faith in Christ, we can still believe that we're displeasing to Him. 
And so this is going to make it difficult for us to have this kind of confidence that God is faithful. And it's going to put us in a position where we start to think we need to try harder, we need to obey more to to earn back God's favor. But what, what this passage is pointing us to is the reality that Jesus is our propitiation. We're going to explain that more. Jesus is our propitiation. He was always, in every way, pleasing to his Father. And on the cross, he took all of God's displeasure for our sin upon himself. And so by faith, we can be confident that we are pleasing to God because Jesus was pleasing to God for us. And in Christ, we will find more and more pleasure in walking closely with our God. Those are the things that we're going to see here, and I hope that that's encouraging and builds us up in our faith, in our confidence this morning. So as we start, a question, a question for us to consider. Is God pleased with you? Is God pleased with you? What, what's your gut level response to that question? So if, if I surveyed the room this morning, asking if you thought that your earthly or your biological father was pleased with you, we would get a wide variety of responses. Some would have a confident, yes, my dad is pleased with me. He is proud of me. Others would probably be less certain of that reality. They would wonder what their dad truly thought of them. Others would be really certain in the other direction. They would be very sure that their dad is in no way pleased with them. And that's a sad reality that we face in a world that's been broken by sin, where those who are supposed to care for us don't or are unable or unwilling. And that's a sad reality that's going to make this kind of question hard to answer. And so forgive me for that but we're doing it for a reason. Because we see in Genesis 5, and we see again in Hebrews 11, that Enoch walked with God. And the idea behind walking with someone is being pleasing to them, having a closeness and an intimacy and a mutual enjoyment of one another's company. That's what we're talking about here with Enoch. And so it begs another question, what makes somebody in general pleasing to God? And that answer is right here. It's answered for us very quickly in Hebrews chapter 11, saying, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Enoch, by faith, he was taken up so that he should not see death. And before he was taken, it says, he was commended as having pleased God. And so the answer is faith, obviously. It's right there. Faith is what is pleasing to God. And Enoch was a man of faith before he was or before he did anything else. I mean, sure, he was a prophet who really aggressively called out the evil and the wicked of his generation. But it wasn't his work as a prophet that made him pleasing to God. And it wasn't his obedience to the law, what the Hebrew audience would be thinking about. It wasn't his obedience to the Ten Commandments because those had yet to be given. It was Enoch's faith that made him pleasing to God. But if we can go down this rabbit hole just another step further, what is it about faith that makes us pleasing to God? How do we as those born in sin, those displeasing to God, how do we go from displeasing God to pleasing him. 
How does that work? And so this is how I make sense of it in my brain. We were born into the world. We were born dead in our sins. We walked in opposition to God. We rebelled against him and all of his ways. We loved everything he hated, and we hated everything he loved. And so we were oppositional children, if you want to think about it that way. And Romans 8.8 8 says that we are, uh, if those in the flesh, they cannot please God. And so we were, in fact, displeasing to a holy and to a righteous God who is set apart, who is different, who is perfect in all of his ways. We've got a problem. But Jesus, he was born into the world. He was tempted in every way. He was tempted to live in opposition to his father. He was tempted to rebel against all the ways that his father had laid out. But Jesus, he always lived in a manner that was pleasing to his father. He was not an oppositional child in any way with his father in heaven. In fact, he joyfully obeyed his father. And he walked closely with him every single second of his entire life, which is hard for us to fathom, right? Every single second, perfect fidelity and faithfulness to his father. But that's our Lord Jesus. And it's even said explicitly of him in a couple different spots. In Matthew 3, as Jesus was baptized, as he came out of the water, the heavens opened up, the spirit descended on him like a dove, and this booming voice out of nowhere says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Again, in Matthew 17, Jesus goes up on the mountain of transfiguration. Uh, John, Peter, and James are with him. And again, this booming voice says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so Jesus was loved perfectly by his Father. And he loved his Father perfectly, as they had done throughout all eternity before he ever came here. They had a oneness in their relationship. Yet on the cross, Jesus willingly took upon himself all of God's wrath, all of God's displeasure for our sin, the closeness and that oneness that Jesus had with his Father and with the Spirit. It was, it was broken as Jesus was forsaken by his Father so that people like us, those who displease God, those who are dead in sin, could be made alive, could be made one with his Father. And so both of these elements, these crucial elements of what we believe are so important for this discussion. We are commended as having pleased God through faith. Because when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his perfectly pleasing obedience is given to us. And he takes upon himself our imperfect, our displeasing life, our oppositional life. Jesus took upon himself. And that's what it means when we say Jesus, he is our propitiation. An amazing word that has a lot behind it. Jesus is our propitiation. He appeased God's displeasure with our sin. And he makes us pleasing to God, to his Father. And so on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty 
taking the punishment for all of our, our past, all of our present, all of our future sin. And now we can say with confidence, through faith in Christ, we are pleasing to God. And so that's what it means to have faith, to have trust and confidence that we are pleasing to God because God is pleased with his son. So we just dedicated Graham this morning. Jake, I bet you are pleased with that little guy. Even though, as we said, doesn't do much in way of obedience. There's some willful rebellion there, I'm willing to assume, by now. But because you're his dad, you are pleased with him. He has your favor. Even when he disobeys you, you still love him, and you desire that closeness with him, right? I just went to the restroom a couple minutes ago. I told Matt Simmons I was going to talk about this. He was changing his daughter's diaper. But he did it because he loves her and because she needs it. So if that's those two dudes, how much more does our Father in heaven desire the same things for his kids? How much more is he willing to clean us up and to care for us? And so, again, what makes you pleasing to God? What is your gut-level answer to that question now? It's your faith. It's your faith in the one who always did that which is pleasing to God. It's faith in the one who took God's displeasure for your sin upon himself. And so for us, what would having that kind of confidence that God is pleased with you because of your faith, what would that change about your walk with him? What would that change about your confession? What would that change about what you ask him for for your life? I think, I think this means for us as God's people today, we can remain, we, we know that we're going to remain close to him. And we know that he's pleased with us because of our faith. And so we should hesitate less in coming to him in confession. We should go to him confidently requesting the grace to be even closer with him than we were before. Having God's pleasure upon us by faith changes everything for every aspect of our lives. And it's a matter of us living like that. It's a matter of us recognizing that and embracing it and letting it change how we live. And this is specifically how it changes. I'm going to ask again in the form of a question. Are you pleased with God? Are you pleased with God? On Friday morning, a a friend of mine asked me uh, at breakfast, Um, kind of out of the blue, caught me a little off guard. He asked me, what makes you happy? And I've studied this a lot. I know that at the core of everybody, we have relational desires. In other words, we find joy in our relationships, in our connections with other people. And so I knew that, but in that moment, I was still left scrambling for an answer. I really didn't have much uh, to tell him in that moment. And so what makes you happy? Are you pleased with God? So if we consider Enoch's life, this guy who lived 365 years, who walked with God, who prophesied to people, pleading with them to come to faith in, in, in God. And if we look at Hebrews 11, it says two things about the nature of faith. It says, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so again, what makes you happy? What's your gut level, shoot from the hip response to that question? 
if you were asked. And so what Hebrews 11.6 is getting at is that those who have faith, who God has drawn near to himself and who are drawing near to God, we must believe, what it literally means is we must believe that God is. That's the literal translation of, of that text. We must believe that God is. And so when, when Moses was talking to God in the burning bush and God said, and Moses was like, who are you? Who should I say is sending me? And he says, I am. Tell them I am is sending you. That's kind of what we're talking about here. That's the realm that we're in. We must believe that God is the great I am. We must believe that God exists. We must believe that the one true God laid out in Scripture is God. Faith, is. this is telling us, faith goes to the right source. Faith is placed in the only one who is worthy of, of our complete trust. So we don't place our faith in ourselves, no matter what the world would tell you. We don't place faith in anybody else, no matter what they may ask of us. And we don't place our faith in this world, but rather, faith is to be placed in the right place. And so, we believe that this God who is, this God of the Bible, we believe Him And we believe, it says, that he rewards those who seek him. He rewards those who seek him. And so we were dead in sin. We were displeasing to God. But by faith, God is pleased with us. And now we grow in this confidence that God's going to do all he's promised to do. And as as that happens in us, we're going to be finding that God is more and more pleasing. Because of Jesus, we're walking more and more closely with God, knowing that we're pleasing to him. But in our experience, our reality is is that we're not as pleased with our God as we could be. As our God remains faithful to us, we're going to walk more and more closely with him. And we're going to turn from other rewards, quote-unquote rewards, We're going to turn from other rewards and we're going to start to draw nearer and nearer to God as we see him as our great reward. He is the rewarder of those who seek him and he himself is our great reward. Anything that keeps us from being closer to him becomes less and less valuable in our sight and we have this new affection for God that replaces our old affections for anything but God. And so when my friend asked me on Friday morning, What made me happy? I pondered for a few seconds, and I said, well, honestly, there are times when I am really happy with Jesus, but then there are times when I'm also really happy with anything but Jesus, because that's my reality. I can say with confidence that I'm much more pleased with who Jesus is and what he's done than I was 10 years ago. And that's a pretty cool thought as I was preparing this week. Because as I've learned more about him, I've wanted to be closer with him. But that's that's a slow process. And it's a process that I don't always notice. Even on Friday morning, it wasn't evident to me that Jesus was my great reward until I really had to think about it, until it was really put right in front of me by a faithful friend. So what we're talking about here this morning is 
drawing closer and closer to the God of the Bible because we see him as the rewarder of those who draw near to him and him being our great reward. We were walking in opposition to him, but by faith it's just as though we've always walked closely with him, always doing that which is pleasing to him. And in our experience, in our reality, we will find our God to be more and more pleasing. Because when you think about it, when I thought about it on Friday morning, is there anything that's more amazing than the God of the Bible? Remember, the whole point of Hebrews is that Jesus is better in every way. And yet when you ask me, I might think of a lot of other things that make me happy in those moments. But as you read through Scripture, as you see the works of God, as you learn about Jesus, I mean, what can compare with that? Honestly. I ask that question as one who's wrestling with that very question, but the good news for me, because God is faithful, this is the kind of perspective that our faithful, gracious Father is patiently working in us, just as a good dad seeks to help his kids understand what's important. That's what our God is doing. He is patiently working in us a greater degree of understanding of who he is and what he has done, and as that happens, we are drawn close to him like a magnet. We are more and more excited about who he is and what he has done. And those other things, those other rewards, they become less and less appealing. And so can you identify those things? What are the quote-unquote rewards in your life that are drawing away your attention from Christ, that are drawing your affection somewhere else? Because if you're human, I know you got some. Because I do too. What do we do with those things? How do we deal with areas of our life where we don't find God to be all that pleasing? When you disobeyed your father, how did you approach him? Or did he approach you? A lot of times that experience can inform how we wrestle with this. But there's one major element of Enoch's life that we haven't even touched on yet. An aspect of faith that's crucial for how we live in a world where our attention and our affection is constantly being drawn away from our God. And so Genesis 5 said that Enoch walked with God and that he was not, that he was not, for God took him. And Hebrews 11 says that he was taken up so that he should not see death. He tested out a death by faith. It's great. And he was not found because God had taken him. And so the word for taken here is is actually the word translated. Like that's kind of weird to think about. Enoch was translated from earth directly into the very presence of God. And so we don't have any details about what that looked like. Uh, It happened one other time in scripture with a guy named Elijah, another prophet who told it how it was. He was taken up in a whirlwind, it says, by a chariot of fire into the presence of God. And so, it's not an everyday thing for this to happen. But it's why if you were a Hebrew, if you were reading this letter, you'd be really familiar with Enoch. And this is an amazing story. You'd you'd have this sense of what's going on here. But it says, Enoch's faith was so pleasing to God that that God literally took him from this place and brought him directly into his presence. So let me caution you in thinking that this will happen to you because that's not the point of the passage. 
As great as that would be, I don't see any whirlwinds coming, and when the tornado warnings come up, we should head for shelter. Don't run toward them. These are two events in Scripture, Enoch and Elijah, that happened to specific people at specific times, but because of our sin, we face physical death. And that's something that we need to be prepared for. But on the other hand, there are some realities for us in Enoch's translation that we can celebrate as we battle against everything that seeks to draw our affection and our attention away from our God. And so the word taken in Hebrews 11 is also used in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, says this, He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred, same word, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so not that we're looking forward to being taken up in a whirlwind, but we look back to the reality that we've already been translated. We've already been transferred from this domain of darkness and we have been firmly planted in the kingdom of the beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And so what happened with Enoch physically if you have trusted Christ, it's happened with you spiritually. When our attention and our affection is being drawn away, what, what's really happening is we're being, they're trying to retranslate us back into a dark kingdom, a different domain, another place where all that we find is opposition to God. That's what temptation to sin is. But we remember that we aren't of this place anymore. We don't live there. We have a new address. We're part of a new kingdom. And Enoch, it says, was not. I love that, just simple. He was not. He was not found, says Hebrews 11. And if we continue reading the book of Colossians, we'd see this from chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Look to the reality of what God has done for you in Christ. He's transferring you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. Paul keeps going in Colossians 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden, in, uh, hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is, your life appears then you also will appear with him in glory. That's an amazing reality for us. If you're in Christ, you are hidden in him. And so when the Father, when the Father looks at you, he sees Jesus. He sees his perfectly pleasing son. And so we have been transferred, we have been hidden, we have been covered, and these are amazing realities that Enoch's translation points us to. And these are the things that we come back to when our attention and our affection are being drawn away from our God. And lastly, Enoch's translation, it shows us that this life, life in this place, it's not all there is. For us, death is a door directly into the throne room of God, right into his 
presence. And God's intent, because he is faithful, is to get us from this place directly in front of him. And that is where we will be absolutely astounded. We will be over the moon pleased with our God. There will be nothing that draws our attention and our affection away from him, but rather he will be right before us. All we have to do is look. All we have to do is be in his presence. And that day will come. We can be very confident in that. But for now, is our God, is he more and more pleasing to you? As he has drawn himself, drawn you to himself, are you being drawn to him? Are you seeing his greatness and his glory? Are you living as though you have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son? What does that look like for you? What does living like that entail? What does it change? Faith is confidence that God will do all that he's promised to do. Faith is confidence that we have been commended as righteous. And faith is confidence that we are pleasing to God. And so now we live lives where we are more and more pleased with him by faith. So let's consider together this morning as we go to the communion table. Let's consider this week as we go into our community groups what that means for us. I want you to think about that. I want you to pray about that. I want you to confess, affirm who you are as one pleased, uh, who is pleased, uh, is pleasing in God's sight, and then request the grace to, to be more and more close with him as we wait for him to come back. So let's pray together, and then we'll give you the chance to consider those things at the communion table. Lord, we give you thanks and praise again. We've sang about your faithfulness. We've sang about you being our mighty fortress, Lord God. And those are some amazing realities for us. Let the the reality that we are are pleasing to you, not because of our works, not because of our obedience, but rather we're, we're pleasing to you because of our faith in your Son. Let that change us, Lord God. Use that to draw us closer to yourself. Use that to to show how you are the great reward of our soul. Whatever that means for us this morning, Lord, help us to confess clearly and quickly, Lord. Help us to affirm what you've done to make us pleasing. Help us to request all the grace we need to draw near and near to you. So, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief this morning. Point us back to your Son, by your spirit. Lord, we pray these things trusting that you will show yourself to be quite faithful in these moments here and as we get into our week as a church. Thank you, Lord God, in Jesus' name, amen.